So we'll continue with our reading, and we'll pick up at Nehemiah um, chapter 8 and verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gates. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed, blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jemin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Henan, Peleah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fats and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they find it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booze for themselves, each on his roof, 
and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we come to his word. Our God, we thank you for this privilege you've given to us again of meeting around your word. And Father, as we do that again this morning, and we ask that we would be attentive to your word. And we ask that you would take your word and by your spirit that you would change us. Give us understanding. And show us Christ again in your word, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, just last week, we saw the wall completed. And that was a good milestone for the people of God. But it's not their goal. Okay, it's just a means to an end. The wall will bring them security so that they, the people of God, can focus on worshipping God. Because that's what this is all about. Now, at this stage, I thought that less than 10% of God's people were actually living within the walls. And in chapter 7, Nehemiah, verse 5, he found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first. So what Nehemiah is doing through that chapter, he's checking everyone who has come back so that he can then encourage them to move to live within the walls as they're supposed to and be living as the people of God. Chapter 7 is, is almost exactly the same as Ezra 2, and that really shows us the, the continuity these past 90 years. The goal has always been the same in, in, in this whole project through Ezra and Nehemiah, and the goal is to refocus God's people on worshipping God. And if they are going to refocus again as a worshipping community then they need the word of God. And this brings us to chapter 8, and that is where we are going to focus this morning. In chapter 8, Ezra reappears on the scene after 13 years. And as the scribe that he is, he comes to teach the word of God. And chapter 8 is really a turning point for God's people as the word of God would again become the centre of all their life. In this chapter this morning, I want us to see their desire for the word of God and then their response to the word of God. So firstly, we'll think about their desire for the word of God and we'll think about it through verses 1 to 8. As I said, the wall is finished. The people are no doubt worn out and exhausted. 
they have returned to their homes for a well-earned rest. Chapter 7 finishes by telling us the seventh month had come. That's an important month in the life of God's people with various festivals to celebrate. There's the Feast of Trumpets, and there's the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booze. We'll think a little about those later. But you would think all they wanted to do at, at this point was just rest and time out, perhaps time with family and whatever else they had missed out on. But look at what we read in chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now they came together perhaps because it was the first day of the seventh month, but notice what they wanted. They wanted to be taught from the word of God. All the people gathered as one. There was a a united desire among all of God's people to be taught from the word of God of God. Notice that the people told Ezra to bring the book of the law. The people were under no obligation to come and be taught from God's word. They weren't directed by Nehemiah or Ezra. The people of God desired the word of God and on their own initiative They told Ezra, bring the book of the law. That is what we want. And notice too that that this book of the law of Moses, it's the book that the Lord had commanded Israel. These are the very words of God. It is God's revelation to his people. Well, they desired the word of God, and the word of God was what they got. We see verse 2, Ezra brought the word of God. We see verse 3, he read the word of God all morning. I'll add to that. And then he explained the word of God, um, verses 7 and 8. We see verse 4, there was a large wooden platform made for the purpose And around Ezra, 13 helpers who probably took turns to read different sections um, of the Word of God. In verse 7, there were another 13 helpers, and they probably moved around the people of God, helping them to understand what was being taught. So the Word of God was read and explained. And you will notice there's an importance and an emphasis on understanding. We see it in verse 2. All those who could understand, all those who were able to come and hear and understand, they were the ones that gathered. Verse 3, again, those who could understand. Verse 7, the Levites were there to help the people understand. Verse 8, they explained so the people understood what was being read. And also note verse 6, 
as God's people desired the word of God, it was God himself they were desiring. Look at verse 6. As Ezra read the word of God, he said, Bless the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You see, as scripture is read and explained and understood, what happens? God is praised. God's people brought back to worship God by the word of God. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you desire the word of God? As we meet just like this this morning, is your greatest longing the word of God? As we meet just like this, is your greatest longing God himself through his word? Some of you will be familiar with, and you will know Psalm 119. And if you're familiar with that, and you were asked, what what is that psalm all about? It's the longest psalm that we have. You'll probably say, well, it's about the word of God. It's about his laws and rules and demands. And that is true. And it's a very good text to encourage us in our desire for the word of God. But one thing I think we can often miss with Psalm 119 is the personal interaction between the psalmist and God. And I want to encourage you after today to, to go home and, and read through this psalm. Because this psalm, it's not a command to a believer saying, you must read the word of God. Psalm 119 is an individual, a person, who is desiring and longing for more of God in his word. One of the first things to note in that psalm is is all the personal pronouns. So, I and you. I and you. All the way through. So, I is the person. You, God. And I want to highlight just some things the psalmist says through this. Because it really makes the point that it's just personal between the person and God. Verse 10, he says, With my whole heart, I seek you. Verse 20, he says, My soul is consumed with longing. Verse 94, the psalmist says, I am yours. Verse 131, he says, I I open my mouth and pant. So is his longing for God. Verse 139, he says, My zeal consumes me. Verse 145, With my whole heart I cry. Verse 151, But you are near, O Lord. You see that? There's a deep, deep longing for God in his word. 
But yet what we also see in Psalm 119 is actually the psalmist's life is far from ideal. When you read through, you will see that, that this is a person and he is struggling with sin and impurity. He has many sorrows in this life. He, in fact, he says, my soul is melting with sorrow. He is one who feels shame. He is battling selfishness. He is, is afflicted and seeking comfort. He is angry and frustrated. He is fearful and lonely. He even says he feels at risk of, of perishing. He, he, he just feels at times like he could just fall apart. So it's not an example of a model Christian. It is a real person who knows well the harsh realities of life and yet in all that and through all that there is a deep longing and desire for more of God in his words. And as he longs and as he desires for God in his words through all the many complexities of life, he ends in praise. Whatever your reality may be just now, may you desire and long for God in his word. This was such a significant day here in Nehemiah. It was such a significant day in the life of God's people. One writer says that this day brought new life and new patterns of life. If you think again back to chapter 1 in Nehemiah, remember how God's people were. They were apathetic, they were lethargic, they were really desiring nothing. And yet here they are desiring God's word, they are given God's word, and they're like new people. They're standing, they're attentive, they're worshipping, they are weeping, and they're rejoicing. And today, as we strive to see revitalization happen here in Craigavon, firstly among God's people, what we need most is to desire and to be attentive to the word of God. And this is exactly why, as we meet together on Sunday mornings, the Bible is brought, it is opened, it is explained to the best that I can do with the help of God's Spirit. And that is why on Thursdays we follow up to ensure and to help each other understand God's Word. And if we want to see new life in the lives of those around us outside the family of God, then we need to give them the word of God. We need to read it and explain it and we need to help them understand it. That's why we run such courses as Hope Explored. That is why we have children here on a Monday evening. We want people to understand the word of God. That is Jesus Christ, as John refers to him in John 1. You see, all of God's word is to point us to Jesus Christ. All of God's word is helping us to understand 
who Jesus Christ is, the word that brings us back to God to worship him. And he did this through coming to this earth to live a perfect life, to die in place of sinners and to rise again, offering life forever to all who would believe. We go to the book of Acts and we see the great revival that God brought through the word of God taught. We think of Acts 2, Peter stood up to preach. He read the scriptures, he explained the scriptures, and what happened? 3,000 were added to the church. We think of Philip, who met just one-to-one with the Ethiopian eunuch. What did he do? He explained the scriptures. He helped the man to understand who Jesus is and what he had done. And then we think of how the Gentiles came to be added to the church. People who, who was never thought would be added to the church. And how did they come? Peter explained and helped them understand who Jesus is and what he had done. And the same with Paul. He travelled from city to city. He went around the Roman Empire. What did he do? He read the scriptures. He explained the scriptures. And he helped people to understand who Jesus is. And when churches were established and Paul moved on, what instructions did he leave for God's people to thrive and to continue? He said, teach the word of God. And we could go on. Scripture reference after scripture reference, church history, reformation, whatever. People are changed by the word of God. Do you this morning desire the word of God? Because if we want to see God move here, and if we want to see revitalization happen, then we need to be people of the Word. We need to read the Word, we need to explain it, and we need to understand the Word of God. People desire the Word of God. Now let's think about response to the word of God. Well, we already saw that they responded with worship in, in verse 6. They lifted up their hands, probably referring to prayer, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then in verse 9 to 12, um, we see that a response um, to the word of God should be joy. Rejoicing. But we see in verse 9 that all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Probably weeping at just all they've come through from exile till now. But weeping at their sin which caused exile. Weeping as, as current sin is exposed again through the reading of the law. Perhaps weeping at the thought of God's judgment and curse upon them because of their sin. But notice what Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites said to them. It's repeated three times. Look at verse 9. They say, this day is holy to the Lord your God. It was holy as in it was set apart, it was set aside um, to be different. We know from Leviticus 23, it was to be a solemn day of rest from work and offerings to the Lord. 
They say, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not weep or mourn. Then again, verse 10, they say, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. Don't weep. This is a day for rejoicing. And in verse 10, this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. We see it another time, verse 11. The Levites calmed, so the people had obviously got very worked up. They calmed the people saying, be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. Now there was an appropriateness to their grieving. Okay, it's certainly right to be aware of our sin, particularly as, as God's word is read and taught. But God's people are only to grieve for a moment because true engagement and understanding of the scriptures will lead to rejoicing. This this seventh month, these festivals are to be a month of rejoicing. That's very clearly stated in Deuteronomy. We've said that, that the month begins with the Feast of Trumpets. Then there's the Day of Atonement, that's the tenth day where where God's people can rejoice that God has made provision to deal with the problem of sin. And then there's the Feast of Booths, which begins on the fifteenth day of the month. And and God's people can rejoice there as, as they remember how God has delivered them from Egypt and then provided for them and protected them through the wilderness years before they reach the promised land. And as God's people here in in the time of Nehemiah, as they remember God's deliverance from Egypt, so they can remember a further deliverance from exile. They, They can remember that they deserve judgment and exile, and yet God has provided a way for them back. He has protected them to this point where they can live again safely as the people of God. This indeed is a day of rejoicing for God's people. And so we see verse 12, all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And again, as we meet this morning, this too is a day for rejoicing. As we remember God's deliverance in our lives. As we remember that that, that we should have received God's judgment and curse because of our sin. But God has made provision for our sin through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I guess again, there is an appropriateness our grief as we hear the word of God and our sin is exposed again. But that grief should only be for a moment. You know, if you leave here and all that is in your mind is sin and judgment and sorrow, then you haven't properly understood God's word. And there will be no strength for you to go out and to live another week you will gain no strength from grief and sorrow and pain. 
through only focusing on our sin. But God's people find strength for living through the joy of deliverance and forgiveness and freedom. Think about it. Where do we find strength for the week ahead to overcome sin? By looking to our sin? No. By looking to the one who has overcome sin and delivered us from sin's power. Where do we find strength to, to deal with guilt in this life? By looking to our sin? No. But by looking to the one who has freed us from guilt and given us peace with God. Where do we find the strength to face bereavement and every other sorrow that life brings? By looking to your sin that brought sorrow and death? No. But by looking to the one who has triumphed over death by his sinless life. See, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And surely joy says something to those outside the family of God. I was reading a a thread on on Twitter during the week. And so this question was was put up and it was put to to ex-atheists. And the question was, basically, if you used to be an atheist, what changed your mind? And here was one answer. This lady said, when I met, I met the most famous and smartest atheists in the world and I realized they were miserable. Then I met a Christian who didn't know much of anything. (laughs) I shouldn't say a lot. I met a Christian who didn't know much of anything, but she was the happiest person I ever met. And I changed that day. You see, there's something about joy that people want. I don't mean a superficial joy that's happy and smiley and flippant in, in every circumstance. But there's a joy we have in the Lord that is steady through all circumstances. We respond to God's word with joy, with rejoicing. One other thing just I want to note here is to see this this link between um, holiness and and joy. Um, Derek Kidner says that um, holiness and gloom go ill together. John, it might be best if we just turn, turn that down all together. Is that okay? Uh, thanks. Good stuff. Yeah, Derek Kidner says three times it's, it's pointed out that, that holiness and gloom go ill together. So to say it the other way, holiness and joy go together. Holiness and joy go together. I, I remember saying one time in a sermon something to the effect of God cares more about our holiness than our happiness. Now, there's some element of truth in that, but it can give the impression that holiness and joy do not come together. So it's almost like we have to choose one or the other. So we either will think, right, well, I'm going I'm to focus my life and I'm going to be holy. Or else, you know, I'm going to focus on joy in this life. I'm going to be happy. 
And I don't believe God's plan is for us to be one or the other. And the best example, if we think back, right back to the Garden of Eden, and God created the world, and he put Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, into the world. And at that time, they were holy. That is, they had not sinned. And they had full enjoyment in God and in his creation. See, holiness and joy went together. But we know they sinned. And when they sinned, they lost joy. They didn't enjoy God and his creation as they once did. Now the good news of the gospel, we see it so clearly in John, is that Jesus comes to give us joy. Jesus lived a perfect life that Adam or Eve or no other human could live. And he gives that perfect holiness to us as a free gift so that we can be right before God. And with that perfect holiness comes perfect joy. Okay, Isaiah speaks about a day when God's people will be free from all pain and they will rejoice and be glad. They'll be feasting. So there's a day in the future for God's people when they will experience unending joy, joy that cannot be disturbed, and joy that is guaranteed to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Christian life here and now is one of growing in holiness and joy, all the time moving towards that final day. Perhaps when we think of holiness, we think about self-denial and all the things that we cannot do. And I want us to see this morning that that holiness is not so much about self-denial, but about embracing, embracing the joy that God gives us. Of course, this will involve sacrifice. Think, Think about it for a moment like this. Think about a man who enjoys going from one girlfriend to the next, and we'll not say much more about that. But there's little effort, little commitment required. It's, it's carefree for him, and he enjoys it. And then there's a man who, well, he decides to marry, which, of course, requires much more effort, much more commitment, much more sacrifice. But the joy he will have from marriage it will be longer-lasting, it will be deeper, it will be fuller, it will be more satisfying. And I think that's a bit like us in the Christian life. Some sinful choices that that require little effort and sacrifice, yeah, they may bring some temporary or fleeting joy and satisfaction. You know, but think about it. Those times we go for the temporary satisfaction, the temporary joy. Think about that. Those times we act in anger. That, that, that we're resentment, that we hold grudges, that those times we, we engage in sexual sin, who really feels satisfied? Who, who really feels deep joy in those things? Yes, momentary perhaps. You see, holiness fostered over your life will bring you to a place of much deeper, more satisfying, longer-lasting joy until that day when you will see perfect holiness face to face. And what does scripture tell us? When we see him, Jesus Christ, we will be like him 
We will be perfectly holy. And then we will know perfect joy for unending time. We respond to God's word with worship, with joy. And very briefly with this, I close with obedience. Of course, this is closely linked to what we've just thought about. We see this in verses 13 to 18 as the people celebrated the Feast of Booths. As they heard the word of God, as the people heard the word of God, they did what the word of God said. Verse 15 there in chapter 8 is in direct obedience to Leviticus 23, 40. Um, Verse 17 is in obedience to Deuteronomy 16, 13 forwards. And verse 18 is in obedience to Deuteronomy 31, 10 and forwards. And verse 18 again is in obedience to Numbers 29. So you see the point. They heard what God said and they did what God said. And the application here is very obvious, isn't it? When we hear what God says, we do what God says. And look at verse 17. There was very great rejoicing. What a time that was for the people of God. And I think and I pray, Lord, do this in our lives. Do this in our lives. Make us hungry for your word. God, as we come together like this, may we be pleading, even begging for more of you in your word. Change us by your word. Cause us to stand up, to be attentive, to worship, to rejoice, and to be obedient. Let us pray together. Our Father and God, we we thank you again um, for your word, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his perfect life and his death and his resurrection. Thank you that he alone can bring us back to worship you. Thank you that he alone um, can give us that perfect holiness that we need to be right with you. Thank you that he alone can bring us to that place of perfect joy in you again. And Father, we ask that you would increase our desire and our longing for you in your word. And God, even now as a response to your word, that we would worship you more sincerely, that we would have rejoicing in our hearts for your great deliverance, and that we would go on from here to be obedient to your word. And that even others in our various contexts would see how good it is to know you, to live for you, to serve you, and to be obedient to you. Oh God, change us, we pray, for your sake and glory. Amen.